Again, it's awesome because speaking about the Word of God and the fact that we teach Scripture, this is something that Calvary Chapel, I believe, should do. If they aren't, they should do it. This is what we're known for. We teach books chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And you might say, man, that's almost like a foreign concept <laughs> these days in some churches. But I love it in this section. We saw it in chapter 9. We'll see it in this section. Paul's going to use 12 Old Testament verses in 21 verses to prove his point. <laughs> What I love is that Paul didn't think, man, I'm qualified enough just to give you my opinion on life and be done. I'm going to tell you the things that I'm telling you are true because we're basing it and rooting it in the Word of God. Amen? This is what we do every week. This is the goal. I pray that as you leave here, you don't say, man, James said this and that. I hope you walk away going, man, the Word said this and that today. This is the thing that landed in my heart. And it's so cool because what Paul's focusing on here is to say that, man, Israel... We studied in chapter 9, much of Israel missed Jesus Christ. He became a stumbling block to them because they were trying to attain righteousness through their works and traditions rather than by faith in Jesus Christ. This is important because today the same rule applies to every one of us. You will never be able to enter eternity, to enter heaven based on your good works. We're told in Isaiah 64, 6 that our good works are like filthy rags before the Lord. But we are told through all Scripture, we're told over and over again that you must have faith in the promised Word of God. You must believe in who He is and what He is, says, and all of it points to Jesus Christ. And see, as Israel stumbled over Jesus, they said, man, he didn't fit our box. We wanted a Messiah that would deliver us from Roman oppression. We want a, a, a Messiah that's going to come and exalt us because we're the chosen people. But when Jesus came and called them to repent, when Jesus told them the kingdom of God is at hand, you need to repent. When John the Baptist, the forerunner, came and called them a brood of vipers, people got offended. They said, this can't be our gospel. This can't be our Messiah. And they refused. And though the word went before them, they didn't hear it in the sense of receiving it. Does that make sense? This is important because this morning, everyone in this room is going to hear the word of God in the sense of having it absorbed. It's going to come out here. You're going to be exposed to it, I should say. But that does not mean it's going to land in your heart and take root. <laughs> there is a responsibility this morning to say, I believe what is being taught here and I'm going to put my faith in it. And when we do, when we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. Amen? Amen. Look at what we begin with here in verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 10. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In these first four verses, Paul is beginning to explain how Israel stumbled over Jesus, how instead of accepting Him and receiving Him as their Messiah, they tripped over the idea that, man, they needed to repent, that they had sin in their lives, even though they were the chosen, covenanted people of God, they did not embrace Jesus. They've stumbled, and he says here in verse 1, he says, man, my heart's desire... My heart's desire, Paul, is I pray to God for Israel that they might be saved. If you remember in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Paul said that he had this great sorrow. He was continually grieved for Jews, for, the Israel, for those of Israel, his brothers, right, by the flesh. He says, man, my heart is breaking for them. 
He says, but what I do is I pray for them. It is my delight, my desire, he says. The word here can be translated as delight. The word is eudokia in the Greek. Think about this for a minute. Paul is saying, I am heartbroken to the point to where I am delighting and praying for the very people who have not only rejected my, my, my Savior, my Lord Jesus, but remember who, we, we went through the book of Acts. Remember who was constantly persecuting Paul? It was Israel. So Jews, what was Paul doing before he came to the Lord? He was persecuting the church. There was this thought of, man, this is our tradition, this is our thing given by God, and they took these Ten Commandments, the Jews took Ten Commandments and turned them into, I believe, 635 or something like that, 600 plus laws and traditions. And when Paul showed up and started saying things, when he embraced Jesus Christ, he said, you can be saved without becoming a Jew. That was the most offensive thing you could hear as the covenanted people when you were zealous for the traditions of God. Does that make sense? And see, what happened here was that they would respond by persecuting guys like Paul. And Paul is saying, man, it is my delight to pray for them. <laughs> I don't know who is persecuting you. I use air quotes because I don't think we suffer the persecution that Paul did. But this morning, you may be, man, I had a gnarly week at work. I had a gnarly week with family. I had a gnarly week with friends where, man, all I felt like was opposition. <laughs> Everyone hates the gospel that I'm sharing. And Lord, I'm suffering. Just, are we getting mad at people about that? Or are we praying for them? Is it our delight to pray that maybe the Lord would work in their heart? <laughs> Think about how wild that is. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 44. He said to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Oh, I pray for people that persecute me. Let me tell you, I pray for them like David did in Psalm 69, like crush the teeth in their mouth, Lord, right? No, that's not how Paul's praying. Paul's praying, Lord, may they know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent as Jesus prayed in John 17, 3. He's praying, Lord, I pray they'd come to know you. And he says, here's the problem. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Have you, I was going to say, have you ever known anyone? Have you ever been in a place where you had a zeal for God, but you were actually not a complete knowledge of who God is? I've been there. Can I tell you what this usually looks like? It usually looks like legalism. It usually looks like division. It usually looks like contention because I believe I know everything there is to know and that everyone else is wrong. Can I tell you what happens when I come more and more into the knowledge of who God is? i tell you what I realize. I'm a rotten sinner. <laughs> I tell you what else I realize? God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. And there's no way I could have ever been saved by the legalism I'm preaching. Amen? But see, in this case, they were zealous for the things. They were zealous for the things like, man, they would walk around with Scripture on their wrist. They would have Scripture on their foreheads. The Jewish people would carry those phylacteries. They would have them on all the time. But yet they thought that burnt sacrifice, they thought that offerings were the things that would make them right with God. And we know Hosea 6.6, 6, right? It says, man, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the Lord says. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Proverbs 21.3 says to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than burnt offerings. You can say, man, I do all my traditions. I do all my works. James 1.22 says, don't just be hearers of the word of God. Be doers, amen? You gotta make sure that we're not stuck in tradition. 
that we're not stuck in, man, I'm going to make my way through. When we start to understand how great God is, we'll understand we can never attain righteousness in his eyes. Amen. Romans 3.20, Paul already wrote this. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Sorry, I thought maybe we got that one. That's okay. None of the flesh will be justified. That's the memory verse of the week. Romans 3.20. Go home and memorize it. Why is that? Because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was never going to save you. The law showed us the holiness of God. It showed us who God is. It showed us the requirements of what holiness is. But we couldn't keep it. We can't attain this righteousness in our own strength. And he says, this is the problem. He says in verse 3, they're ignorant of God's righteousness and they're seeking to establish their own righteousness and they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They're stuck in this mode, Paul would say. And let me tell you, Paul knows this because Paul lived this life. <laughs> Paul called himself, he was what, a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I believe it was Acts 26.3. And then he also calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians 3.5. He says, man, I was more zealous than anybody. I knew scriptures like the back of my hand. But it wasn't until he submitted to God's righteousness, to faith in Jesus Christ, that all of it connected and made sense. And see, in this case, what he's saying is, man, the problem is they keep trying to make their own righteousness and they won't submit to God's righteousness. We say, what does he mean by God's righteousness? We mean the plan for righteousness. How can you be made right? By putting your trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ. They won't submit to it. The word for submit is hupotasso. It's an awesome word in the Greek. It's a military word that means to submit under the ranking of the person above you. Can I tell you that just because you're in the military, who anyone, anyone in here that's been in the military, I bet you had to submit under people you maybe didn't like. You probably had to, what is it, salute the ranking and not the man, right? I've heard things like this. And the reality is, there's still this human thing that you have to decide to honor that ranking. You have to decide to honor that authority. There's a human responsibility to say, I will submit to this. What this is saying is they haven't submitted to God's plan. They haven't submitted to God's word because they believe they can be righteous in their own ways. I don't know what you're hanging your hat on today as your righteousness. <laughs> you know my favorite one to quote, right? You know I'm going to say it. I've had people say, I donate blood. I'm, that means I'm going to heaven. You're like, what? That's insanity, right? That's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Go donate blood if you can do so. That's cool. But let me tell you, your good works, your charitable deeds are not going to save you from the reality that you are a sinner. The only thing that can save you is putting your trust in the completed work of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, I came to fulfill. What that means is, look, it, I'm not saying the law is abolished. I'm coming to fulfill it so that when you trust in me, it is as if that righteousness is given to you. This is the only way you can be made righteous. You can't trust in your works. You can try, but I'll tell you, it's going to result in eternal separation from God the Father. You must trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And see, verse 4, it says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I love this verse. <laughs> can I tell you what this does not mean? This does not mean that now that I am in Jesus Christ, I can be disobedient and do whatever I feel like all the time. That's insane. <laughs> That's not what the Bible teaches. Amen? 
People want the Bible to teach that, and I get it. I wish we had the erasable Bible. We could just maybe erase some scriptures out, right? Like, no, I don't like that one this week. I'm going to erase that and just live the way I want to live. That's not what we're called to do. Can I tell you in scripture, when it talks about faith, when it talks about believing, there is a word in the Greek that has to do more with just, it's, it's not just intellectual thought. I believe what Jesus said. To believe something meant you were going to put it into action. See, in English, we go believe is just a thought thing, right? But the reality is if you believe something, you're going to live like it. I believe in gravity, therefore I don't jump off of buildings. Right? I mean, a basic, basic idea, right? You can say you believe in gravity, but until you test this thing and you live like you believe it, well, then now I see that it's true. I believe that Jesus is my Lord. Well, then you should live as if you've submitted to him. Amen? You should live as if he is your master. Yes, he's your savior, but he's also your Lord. Everyone wants a savior, but no one wants a Lord. He's got to be both. <laughs> and see, in this section, it says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why is that? Because we already said it. He fulfilled the law. Amen? It's done. He's fulfilled it. We are told in Galatians 3, 24 and 25 that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, but after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. We are now in Christ. And I'll tell you, in 1 John 2, 2, it says Christ is the propitiation, the payment for our sins. And not ours only, but for the whole world. That's a big verse, right? This salvation has been given to all the world in the sense that it's available. But this chapter tells us there is a human responsibility, a personal responsibility, that you must confess that Jesus is Lord. You must put your trust in Him. You must believe on Him. The problem with Israel was they were not believing upon Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Awesome. Look at verse 5 through 8. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. And he quotes Leviticus 18.5. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And now he quotes Deuteronomy 30.12-14. Do not say in your heart... Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith, which we preach. <laughs> this is a great section, because what Paul's doing is he's juxtaposing, he's contrasting. He's saying, here's righteousness by law, what it looks like. Here's righteousness by faith, what it looks like, according to Scripture. This is one of those moments where Paul goes back to the Old Testament, which makes sense. The New Testament isn't written yet, I guess, when Paul's writing, right? But you know what I mean? He's using Scripture. We should be using Scripture in all of our conclusions about who God is and how God works. Amen? I pray that, we've said it last week, I pray that we would form our theology based on Scripture and not adjust Scripture to fit our theology. We have to go back to the Word and say, what does the Word say? Is this something new? Can I tell you if it's new, it's probably not true. <laughs> now, the Lord, we're told in, I believe it's Hebrews 13, 8, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? We're told in Malachi 3, 6, I believe it is, that the Lord, He says, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. I don't change. Jesus Christ doesn't change. The Word of God stands forever, even while the grass fades away, the flowers fade away. The Word stands forever. Don't base anything that you believe about the Lord on anything besides His Word. Amen? And see what Paul begins to do here in verse 5. 
He says, what did Moses say in Leviticus 18.5? He said, the man who does these things, speaking of the law, shall live by them. We say, well, what does that mean, Paul? That statement meant this. It was a sobering reminder that if you say you're going to be justified by the law, guess which part of the law you have to keep? All of it. Every single part of it. Okay, everyone that's kept the law perfectly, go ahead and raise your hand in this room. Awesome. I'm going to put my hand down because I have not. Here's the reality. We cannot be saved by the law. Now, you know what the law does? It shows you when you've messed up. Shows you when you've fallen short of the glory of God. We're told in Romans that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? And see, in this case, Paul's writing these Jews that are saying, man, we are seeking our own righteousness. We don't have to submit to God's plan of Jesus Christ. He says, okay, you're going to keep the law? You've got to keep the whole thing. <laughs> and see, at that point, everyone would say, man, I can see the problem with this, right? I would hope people would be humble enough to say that. The book of James, verse 10 of chapter 2 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. <laughs> have you ever gotten pulled over for speeding? Yes, we all, a lot of us have. I have many times. And when you get pulled over, do you ever try to tell the police officer, hey, you know, I didn't speed yesterday, though. You know, I, I was driving really good like all day until you saw me do this. Is that okay? Of course not. You're now guilty. You're a transgressor. <laughs> you, you're busted, right? Okay, well, okay, maybe I don't speed, but those little rolling stops, the stops, and I kind of stop, but there's no one around. I don't really need to stop, right? We're guilty, amen? <laughs> We're all guilty. And I'm, you better be careful. Jonah's a police officer. He's in the back of the room. He's keeping notes for anyone that raised their hands and says they've broken the law this week. Okay, no, I'm just kidding, but I can't help but look back there and go, oh my gosh, I've got to be careful what I say up here today, okay? Um, the reality here, though, is that it's juxtaposed with the righteousness of faith, and see verse 6 through 8, I love it. Paul almost goes into like this miniature verse-by-verse -verse study in Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. And see what he's reading here. He's reading this section when Moses came before the people before they would enter into the promised land. After years of wandering, Moses says, guys, the Lord is going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to guide you. He's going to direct you. But... You have to believe His Word. You have to believe His promises. How will you believe it? You'll obey it. We're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about a desire to please the Lord because He is your God. Amen? And when Moses told him that, he said, you can either go in and be blessed as you walk in obedience, believing in faith, or you can have chastisement and judgment come upon you as you reject the Word of God. And you'll suffer for that. Do not reject the Word of God, Moses said at that time. And what he told them in this section, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, in the same section, Moses said, This commandment which I command you today, it's not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. That's what this whole section is talking about. The idea of, like, do we need to go into heaven? Do we need to descend into the abyss? How are we going to get this word of God? Moses says, I just brought it to you. <laughs> I've been preaching it to you this entire season. We've been in the desert from before we were in the desert. When I told you that God would deliver us out of Egypt, did God bring us out of Egypt? He sure did. But did you obey Him? No. You fought with Him. You refused Him. But God in His goodness continued to guide you as, a, as, as fire, as a cloud, to shade over you, to guide you in the night. He says He's here. He cares for you. He says, it's not too mysterious at this point. You've experienced it. It's been told to you. And I love how Paul applies it in this section. He adds, he adds his commentary in. He says, that is 
to bring Christ down from above or to bring Christ up from the dead. He says, the word of faith that we preach, it's near to you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. Paul gave the original context and the purpose. He didn't pervert the original meaning of Deuteronomy 30 here. But then he applied it in a way to show them that it was also about Christ. He says, as God sent the word down to you, you no longer have to go into heaven and go seek it. It's here for the taking. You don't have to go over the seas to go find answers of wisdom. It's been given to you by the Lord. Paul says in the same way, God has sent His Son down, His Son down in the flesh, the Word of God, according to John 1. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and He came, and He told us exactly what we needed to do to be saved. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Hallelujah. Amen. I love that verse. It's my, one of my favorite verses that Jesus ever spoke. It came from his mouth, and it said it exactly what we can expect. And when Jesus came down, he lived it out perfectly. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He taught us wisdom. He taught us the ways to know who the Lord is. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. Amen? But then, he died. And he rose again, proving that his word was not lies. Because the wages of sin is death. But if he rose again, it means he wasn't lying when he said in John 5, 24, that he who hears his word will be saved. Amen? We now have validity, proof that Jesus is who He says He is and that as we believe in His Word, we will be saved. <laughs> this is what Paul is pressing to anyone that's listening. And we might say, okay, so he's speaking to Jews, right? Is this all about Israel? And we know 9, 10, and 11 has much to do with Israel. But look at how Paul is going to apply it in these next few verses. Look at 9 through 13. It says... If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, and he quotes Isaiah 28, 16, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction, this is key, between Jew and and Greek. Everyone, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, whatever you may be, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's a direct quote from the Old Testament, Joel 2.32. So what Paul is doing in this section, he states this is how you can receive this, this word of faith that he spoke of in verse 8. He says, what you must do is confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Now we read this as two actions, but they're two actions that are happening correspondingly because as one acknowledges who Christ is and believes in what he has done for salvation, these are the things working together. We talked about it. When you believe something, there's going to be an action that follows it, right? When you believe on the fact that, man, Jesus, who he said is, I'm going to confess that he's Lord. Can I tell you what's so important about this confession? When we confess and openly declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we are agreeing and submitting to the word of God. We're no longer trusting in our own righteousness. We're no longer, you know, pointing to some other belief system. We are confessing that Jesus is Lord. 
The word for Lord is curios. And can I tell you what some other religious groups have done? The Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you Jesus wasn't God. He was just a sir. He was an honorable guy. That's what Kyrios means. Dude, this is not what this is talking about here. We have so many other sections where this word's used in certain ways. We know, first of all, that this section in the context speaks of Jesus being the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, God. Amen? But also, says that you have to believe that God raised him from the dead. Can I tell you how many people are ready? I mean, the History Channel will tell you that Jesus is some kind of Lord, right? History Channel also thinks aliens are going to pick us up somewhere, right? They don't know what's going on. And the reality is, Jesus, you may say, oh, Jesus lived. Jesus even died a martyr's death. But do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe that very thing we celebrate on Easter morning every year that we should celebrate every day, amen? That Jesus is no longer dead. Jesus is alive, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercessions for all of us this morning. Amen? He's alive and well. But when you make that profession of faith, what that means is that everything Jesus said has to be true then. I have to acknowledge what He calls me to do. I have to acknowledge what He has done, His example. And I have to trust in the fact that His work... His perfect life has been the propitiation, the only perfect payment that can save me from my sins. And see, when we believe that, when we confess that, it's such an awesome thing. We're told that we will be saved. It makes me think of Matthew 12, 34. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. <laughs> Do people know that Jesus is your Lord? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. You're saved by faith. You're saved by grace. Amen? But are we confessing who Jesus is all the time? We have a season around us right now where I love Christmas. <laughs> but can I tell you how easy it is to coast and assume that everyone knows what Christmas means? Because I'll tell you, people think they know what Christmas means. <laughs> they think it means that like, yeah, hey, we get presents because some, some Jewish baby was born, Right? Now we're celebrating that God put on flesh and came to be born so that he could die and rise again. There's a gospel message connected to his birth. Without the death and resurrection, what is his birth to us? His coming and living would only further condemn us because he lived perfectly. But when he willingly went and died on a cross and then rose again to show that it was all truth, man, this should be a, a season. I know we all say it. He's a reason for the season, right? <laughs> They, they sell mugs at Hobby Lobby that say that, right? We all know that. But what does that really mean? Again, I'm not laying a trip on you like, oh, dude, you guys messed up. I'm guilty of this. I know how easy it is to assume that everyone in America has heard of Jesus. Recent studies show that people have heard the name of Jesus. They don't know what that means, though. And I'll tell you, in this section, we're told faith comes by hearing and hearing by the... We have the Word of God. The world does not... They have stories of who Jesus is, but they don't know who Jesus is. <laughs> we have the blessed privilege to tell them about it. But we're told, this is the important thing in verse 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Isaiah 28, 16. That was written 700 years before Jesus was born. It was always God's plan that man would be saved by faith in the Messiah and his son. It was always the plan that man would confess, that would call on his name. And the idea that you wouldn't be put to shame, can I tell you what gives us shame before the Lord? Sin. 
If you don't call on the name of the Lord, you will be ashamed before the Father. You will be ashamed when you stand before Jesus Christ, who we're told in John 5, 22 and 23, will be the judge. But that judge can become your advocate as you call upon his name. Amen? And you say, okay, cool. Well, this is for the Jews, right? Verse 12 said it's for everyone. <laughs> and I love it. The same Lord over everyone. What is he? He's rich to all. <laughs> rich in love. Rich in mercy. Rich in grace. Rich in his long-suffering towards us. But rich in the fact that he calls us in and says, you will be my children. We're told in John 1, 12. 1, 12 and 13, I believe it is. That as many as believe upon him, he gave the right to become children of God. <laughs> That's greater riches than we'll ever know anywhere on this planet. Amen? God is rich to all who call upon Him. And in verse 13, when he quotes Joel 2.32, he says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word for calls in this section that Paul uses is epikaleo. It means to invoke God by prayer. This is an interesting thing. Because I think sometimes we'll close out, I think almost every week we close out with what we call a sinner's prayer, Right? And when we do that, we say, well, why are we doing that? Is this like a ritual to like convince people to pray? It's teaching people how to call on the name of the Lord. It's to invoke God and say, Lord, I am calling you. I am beginning this relationship by praying, by calling and confessing that I am a sinner. And I need your provided righteousness. And when we do that, we're told again from Joel 2.32... Whoever does this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Hallelujah. This is an incredible statement, and it's from Old Testament Scripture. What's so cool about Joel 2.32? It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and whoever the Lord has called will call on the Lord. This kind of puts to rest those things we've talked about the last couple of weeks, right? Do I call or has He called? Yes. You've got to respond to the call. You've got to call upon Him. Don't ignore Romans 10 when you're reading Romans 9. Put it all together and go, Lord, I have to call on you. Today there is a human responsibility that you call on the name of the Lord. Amen? I tell you, the Lord knows all things. He wants you to call upon Him. He's called you to call upon Him. Call on Him this morning. Today is the day of salvation. Amen? Look at 14 through 15. Paul reminds us as believers that we need to preach the gospel. It says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? And he quotes Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And see, in verse 14, Paul asks two natural questions. The, these questions are this. Like, how, if someone must call on the name of the Lord in faith to be saved, he says, well, how shall they call on him who they have not believed? And secondly, how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? So Paul is suggesting, look, it, man can't call on Jesus if they don't believe in him, and man can't believe until he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Word of God. Amen? I, don't get me wrong. I've heard these stories, and I know there's truth, and these are real things that happen. I've heard this multiple times that in Islamic countries, people are having visions of the pierced Jesus Christ standing before them and telling them to repent, and people are coming to faith in groves in these countries. Can I tell you that's the exception to the rule on how the Lord generally works with the revelation of the gospel? Can I tell you what the privilege, responsibility He's given to His church? That we would be the messengers of His gospel. That's nuts to me. Because couldn't God have just told a bunch of angels to go out and do this? 
Couldn't God himself do whatever, however he wanted to do this? Couldn't he have done it? He says, now that you're mine, I'm going to give you a job, a responsibility, but a blessed privilege. He says, I'm going to have you go out and you're going to actually share the word of God that they may hear what is truth. This is important because it says, how can they hear without a preacher? And I know where your head goes. You go, all right, good. James, it's your job as the preacher to go tell them, right? This word for preacher. Teruso. It's actually a public proclamation of proclaiming the truth of the gospel. It's not limited to some kind of position of the office or the pulpit or being a pastor, preacher, teacher. What this has to do with is if you have the knowledge of saving faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're responsible to go proclaim it. There's someone somewhere in your life, I don't care where you're at, you might be an absolute hermit, jump online and tell someone, I don't know. But wherever you go, you know this, there are opportunities after opportunity to be the preacher of sorts, to herald that message, the good news of great tidings. And it's funny because this is the Great Commission, amen? Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here's an important part we leave off a lot. Teaching them to observe all the things that I have taught you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I will be with you as you do this. Go tell them. It's not just to be baptized, but to actually understand the things that I have taught you. Because why is that? We are blessed when we honor the Word of God as truth and walk in it. Amen? What a blessed thing that God has given us exactly how to worship Him in spirit and truth. How to live in a way where we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Through the power of the Spirit. We know that. Amen? This isn't because I read it and now my flesh is strong enough. I need to die to my flesh daily as Jesus called us to do in Luke 9.23. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. And to do that, we have to be in the Word, but we have to be able to give that Word out. He quotes Isaiah 52, 7, in case anyone was threatened by this idea that, oh man, I have to be a preacher. He says, look at how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, it's Christmas season. I think it's Luke 2, 10, where the angel comes and he tells them, he says, do not fear, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. That's what all these messages pointed to. When Isaiah was, when this was stated in Isaiah 52, 7, again, 700 years before Jesus is even born, it talks about the fact that, man, those feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, it's such a blessed thing. In that time, what it was talking about was the reality that you are going to go into captivity. But the Lord's not done with you yet, Israel. He's going to bring you back into the land. He's going to do these things. This is before the first captivity occurs. He says, the Lord's going to bring you back. That's good news, amen? You know what's better news? Forget being delivered from the oppression of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The being delivered from the oppression of sin and death. It's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and it's near our heart. It's in our mouth. We can now know it. And if we do know it, we should take it out. And see, when Scripture talks about feet, it usually has to do with swiftness. It usually has to do with moving. Walking, running, moving along. The idea is how blessed, how beautiful are those feet of those who preach the gospel. May we be quick about telling people that good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
beautiful calling, a beautiful responsibility. But the reality is, sometimes people will refuse to hear it. Look at verse 16 through 17. It says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, and he quotes Isaiah 53.1, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I knew we'd finally get to that verse that we quote every week. I'm so happy we got there. This is awesome. We'll get it again in like 20 years if the Lord tarries. We work our way back through the whole Bible, right? But it's cool. We get there. In verse 16, Paul says, look at, let's focus back on Israel for a minute. He says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. He says, Isaiah experienced this. Isaiah knew this. They're going to be ripe for judgment as they refuse the promised word of God. In their time, the idea was God will deliver us from Babylon. They would say, yeah, right. Look at how the suffering that we're enduring. Look, at God has forsaken us. We don't believe your word, Isaiah. Can I tell you Isaiah 53, one that's quoted here? Think about Isaiah 53. One of my favorite sections, I'll probably end up teaching it for Good Friday this year. It's a wonderful section. It's prophetically looking at the cross of Jesus and his sacrifice. And it's 700 years before Jesus is born. It talks about the fact that by his wounds, our transgressions, right? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed, right? Isaiah 53, 5. What he's saying in this section, he says, who has believed our report? We've preached it. We've told people that God is faithful to deliver, but some people have not received it. And so the concluding statement that Paul makes in verse 17, he says, so then, in conclusion, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And see, this saving faith that comes by the way of hearing, it comes by the word of God. This is why we read. This is why we study. This is why we teach and preach from the scriptures every time we gather as a body. Faith comes by going to church. Well, sort of, if they're preaching the word. <laughs> faith comes by doing charitable things. No. Faith comes by, you know, waxing philosophical with my buddies. No. <laughs> faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What are we talking about? What are we rooting everything that we believe in? It needs to be the word. When we're studying the word every week, can I tell you what we're growing? Our faith. It's not just the initial exposure to it for salvation, but every day we know that the Word of God is given for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of man's heart. You know when people tell you to follow your heart? <laughs> Terrible advice. Go read the Bible and it will tell you what your heart's doing wrong every moment. You go, man, I'm a sinner, but God is good. As we grow in this, we go, man, I know more and more who God is. And now our zeal is finally catching up with the knowledge. And can I tell you what happens when we get the knowledge of God? We get humbled. And we start proclaiming the thing that we should have always proclaimed is that, man, we are sinners and we need grace. We need Jesus Christ. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. Amen? And if we try to go any other way, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. But you won't know this unless you hear the word of God. And it's our responsibility to go take it out. But it's also man's responsibility to receive it, to hear it with understanding. To receive it and say, I'm putting my faith in what I hear. Amen? Again, I have to say this because right now as I preach the word of God, teach it, there could be someone in this room that's going, man, this is awesome. This is hitting me in the heart. And right next to you, 
there's someone like, man, I can't wait to get in my booth at Texas Roadhouse this afternoon, right? It's just like in one ear and out the other. I know that blooming onion thing they have is phenomenal, right? It's so good. I love Texas Roadhouse. But here's the deal. Don't miss the word of God this morning. It is being preached. And if it doesn't land your heart, just being in the room is not going to do it. Being able to quote scripture from memory is not going to do it. You must believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Attendance is not going to save you. <laughs> your, your religious affiliation, your political affiliation, none of those things are going to save you. Only as you put your faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know more about this? As we study the word of God. Amen? You got to hear it. Look, at this is how we end, 18 through 21. It says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, speaking of Israel. And he quotes Psalm 19.4. He says, Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, and he quotes Deuteronomy 32.21, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, Isaiah 65, 1, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, Isaiah 65, 2, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What these four verse references are being used by Paul for is to show that Israel could never claim to be innocent in the sense that they would say, oh, we never heard the gospel. We never heard the word of God. We didn't know that this was God's plan for salvation, that he would take it to the ends of the earth. You can't judge us. We didn't know better. <laughs> Paul says, well, let's just start here. He says, did you hear? He says, oh, I know you heard because Psalm 19, written a thousand years before Jesus was born, it said that God's testimony, his law, I believe it's Psalm 19.7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word of God will tell you exactly what you need to know. And who walked around with it on their wrist and their foreheads? The Jews. You know these things in the sense that they've been there before you. You've heard these things. In that section, in that verse, it talks about the fact that nature itself screams that there's a God. Amen? Romans 1 told us this already. It repeated the same idea. At the very least, man can never stand before God and go, oh, you gave me no way to know that you existed. <laughs> we always hear about the guy in the jungle, right, that has no missionary and no one coming. What about the guy in the jungle? My first question is always like, what about you, though? You're not in a jungle. That's the first response. But secondly, the man in the jungle is responsible for acknowledging that someone else created everything around him and submitting to that thought. Very basic thing. But we have heard much more than just that, amen? We are responsible to answer to the gospel that's been preached. And see, in this case, and when he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 21 in verse 19, he says, look at the Lord was, I told you this. This was going to happen. Some weird other nations, right? Weird in the sense that they're not Jewish. They're not Israel. They're going to hear this, and they're actually going to provoke you to jealousy. You're going to be just angry over the fact this foolish nation is embracing the self-proclaimed Messiah. Think about how weird this whole thing is. The Jewish Messiah came, was rejected, generally speaking, by the Jews, and Gentiles embraced the Jewish Messiah. And he says, does that seem shocking? It shouldn't be. Didn't, isn't that exactly what the Lord warned you of in Deuteronomy 32? The Lord called his shot prophetically way back when. 
He says, you should have known this would occur. And instead of submitting to it, you just got angry about it. You started persecuting the people that would not submit to Judaism. You started chasing them and killing them and fighting when all this was proclaimed. Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter pointed to Scripture and said, this is a fulfillment of the prophets. Amen. It's all God's word coming to fruition. And in verse 20 and 21, again, he's quoting Isaiah 65, 1 and 2. And he says, those who did not seek me, in the sense that they weren't Israel, they weren't walking around with Scripture on their backs and heads and wrists, he says, I've made myself manifest to them. They weren't the ones that were supposed to even ask for me. Can I tell you, the Lord is rich to all, Jew and Greek, amen? If you cry out to the Lord, he will allow you to come in. In Isaiah 65, 1, it goes on to say, the Lord is saying, here am I, here am I. He's saying, I'm right here. Come into my presence. Come into this relationship with me. But Israel said, I'm not going to submit to this wackiness about some Jewish carpenter, about this guy from Nazareth who called us to repent. We're not buying that. And see, that's why in 21, it says, all day long, the Lord would say, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We can never blame God for not giving us the opportunities. Amen. You can never blame God for saying, man, he just wasn't long-suffering enough. He wasn't merciful enough. He was not gracious enough. Oh, he didn't call me. Joel 2.32 says, call on the Lord and you'll be called. <laughs> You've heard the message. Respond. Say, I don't want to submit to that. Then if that's the case, you're fighting the very hands of God who's reaching out and inviting you in this morning. It reminds me so much of a very heartbreaking verse. I'll close on this. Matthew 23.37, Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem. They rejected him. At the end of his ministry, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's a scary statement. Because God wouldn't allow you. That's not what it says. Because you were not willing. You would not submit. You would not hupotasso. You would not come under the, the, the reality that Jesus is Lord, that he is God the Son, that he died because we are sinners and we need a Savior. He says he's extended his hands to you. And we know in Romans 11, it's going to be awesome next week. We're going to see. God's not done with Israel, amen? He has a plan. He's going to talk about a remnant that's saved by faith versus the majority and how he's going to deal with the majority. But can I tell you something? <laughs> Let's talk about us for a minute. <laughs> You've heard the gospel this morning. What do you do with it? The Lord is extending his hand to you. And if you've put your trust in the Lord today, and you've already put your trust in the Lord, praise the Lord for that. Amen? May we go tell others that they may hear, because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But if you're here today and you say, man, this is the first time I've really heard this in depth, you must make a decision, no man's promise tomorrow. We are told, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow brings. The reality is, today is the day of salvation. Amen? You've heard the gospel. Respond to it. Confess at your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace, Lord. And I pray right now, just where we're seated, Lord, if there's anyone here that has not put their trust in you, Lord, that has not acknowledged the fact that they have sinned, that they've fallen short of the glory of God. They need today, Lord, the only sacrifice that will save them from a true literal hell, Lord.
But Father, better than that, that they would know the truth of your goodness, Lord, of your love, Lord, that they would enter into that intimate relationship with you that they were created for, Lord. Right where you sit, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here today to be saved and to turn from your sins. If God has convicted you of your sins and you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that's a miracle. You need to repent. <laughs> Jesus died for you and rose from the dead and he's able to forgive you. If you want to be born again today, you can begin this relationship. It goes on from here, but you can begin it right where you sit by calling on the name of the Lord. Right in the silence of your heart, you'd pray this prayer. You'd say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>